Hello, hello, and welcome to part two of Lord of the Flies, the analysis and summary of the novel. Uh, I've left you guys kind of hanging for a couple weeks here, and that's that's kind of fitting, I think, because uh, between chapter two and chapter three, where we're starting today in chapter three, when we start in chapter three, time has passed. And that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to pick up right where we left off so that you can listen to part one and part two kind of almost in tandem and there isn't a whole bunch of me just talking about other stuff. I'm going to jump right into uh, chapter three and I want to read just a little piece. This isn't how chapter three starts, but it's very early in chapter three and it's kind of going to kind of set the tone of what's going on. All right, pause. We need to get in reading mode. People don't help much. He wanted to explain how people were never quite what you thought they were. Simon, he helps. He pointed at the shelters. All the rest rushed off. He's done as much as I have, only Simon's always about. Ralph started back to the shelters with Jack by his side. I'll do a bit for you, muttered Jack, before I have to go bathe. Don't bother. But when they reached the shelter, Simon was not to be seen. Ralph put his head on the hole, withdrew it, and turned to Jack. He's buzzed off. Got fed up, said Jack, and gone for a bathe. Ralph frowned. He's queer. He's funny. Jack nodded, as much for the sake of agreeing as anything, and by the tacit consent that they left the shelter and went toward the bathing pool. And then, said Jack, when I've had a bath and something to eat... I'll just check over to the other side of the mountain and see if I can see any traces. Coming? But the sun's nearly set. I might have time. They walked along, two continents of experience and feeling, unable to communicate. If only I could get a pig. I'll come back and go on with the shelter. They looked at each other, baffled, in love and hate. All the warm salt water of the bathing pool and the shouting and splashing and laughing were only just sufficient to bring them together again. So, that opening is an exchange between Ralph and Jack. And when chapter 3 opens up, it opens up with Jack. And this is where you see immediately that time has passed between chapters 2 and chapters 3, because Jack now has this long kind of shock of red hair. And all the boys were close cut and, you know, neat and tidy when they showed up. That means a lot of time has passed. It takes a long time to grow out a long kind of shock of hair. Um, And in the time that they've been there, he still has not got a pig. But Jack is becoming a much more... Uh, skilled hunter. He has learned in his time hunting and he's starting to get in tune with his senses and with the island and with with kind of the primitive act of hunting. He's starting to figure it out. He's feeling the, the pig's droppings and he's noticing that they're warm and he knows that the pig is close and he, he walks back to, to see Ralph and he kind of comes to this realization that in the 
afternoon of the day when it's really hot, the pigs lay up in the shade on the side of the mountain. And so he's really learning, and he's getting very close to killing a pig. But Ralph is frustrated with Jack and with everyone else by this point. Because Ralph has been trying his best to kind of take care of everyone by building shelters. And nobody is helping him very much except for Simon. And you see this in that exchange that I read. He tells Jack, he's like, nobody nobody really helps me very much. People don't help much. And this is the first kind of hint that this whole novel and Golding's whole message to you is is a message about human nature. It's a study of humanity. And this proclamation by Ralph is a it's an astute observation about the nature of people. When he says people don't help much. When there is seemingly like no you know, no reason for people to to give their time and effort in a charitable way. People are not likely to do that unless they are of a certain persuasion. And usually it's a it's a religious persuasion. And that's why it's no mystery that uh, Simon is the only other one that's like really helping out. Because Simon is probably the biggest symbol in the book be you know next to the lord of the flies simon is the the biggest symbol in the book because simon and this is kind of this is reading you ahead a little bit but because this is an explanation focused podcast it's an analysis i'm going to go ahead and read you ahead a little bit simon is a sort of christ literary figure in the novel and right after that part that i read the scene changes and you see Simon. And Simon is off by himself and he's walking alone on the island towards this sanctuary that he has. He goes to this secret place that nobody really knows and it's this it's this tiny little clearing where he kind of crawls in and he can be alone. And it's a little sanctuary where he can sit in solitude and he can he looks out kind of the the screen of the mat of vines and he looks out onto this clearing where like butterflies are floating around and there's flowers and it's it's very beautiful it's very calm it's very peaceful and it is like Simon's church it's where he goes to meditate it's where he goes to think it's where he goes to be alone and that's going to become important as we move through the novel so Simon is off on his own. He's the only boy, seemingly the only boy at this point in the novel, who doesn't have this lingering fear of the beast. There's no other boy on the island who's willing to to be off by himself, completely by himself for a long time, especially at night. Uh, Jack comes the closest, because Jack's hunting a lot, and he is kind of the most bold of everyone else but he even he doesn't want to go out by himself at night simon is not afraid of the beast at all and we're going to find out why 
as we get a little further into the chapter, because we're going to find out that Simon doesn't really believe in the beast as it has been presented to him. Um, and so chapter three really focuses on this kind of building tension between Ralph and Jack and this inner kind of Simon's inner life and who is who Simon is starting to kind of become in the novel. But before I get to Simon more, I want to focus a little bit more on, on Ralph and Jack because I didn't say everything I wanted to say about them. So Ralph and Jack's relationship, what is it like to you? What do you think? What do you think their rela- their relationship seems like? If you actually read the book, I mean, and what you'll see, hopefully, is this relationship between Ralph and Jack has kind of uh, taken on a very masculine and feminine role. And I kind of touched on this in the introduction, and I said there, there's only boys on the island, and that's important because they're even though there's only boys on the island, there's distinct masculine and feminine roles in a in any society. And this book is about a society. And in this society, kind of unwittingly, Ralph has ceded the kind of masculine role of the society to Jack. He's given him this hunter status and this job of being a hunter. While Ralph, to his frustration is kind of left behind at camp trying to act as a sort of feminine kind of mother figure for the boys and he cannot fill he can't fulfill that role because he is a well first off he's a boy second off like it would take an actual mother to fill in that role but Ralph is Ralph is trying to do that and he doesn't really quite realize it because what is he doing? He's staying back at camp. He is concerning himself with building the shelters and with kind of keeping everyone in line. He's supposed to be kind of taking care of the other children, the little ones, uh, and he's tried to enlist Piggy in helping him with that, but Piggy is not is not much of a help there either because the the little kids don't respect Piggy. And this is, Ralph doesn't understand why this is so frustrating to him because he sees Jack out there hunting and Jack really loves to hunt. And Ralph can see that. Meanwhile, every single day, for however long we've been on the island at this point, and it's been a while, it's been at least several months for all the boys here to go out, Meanwhile, Ralph has been hating every minute of being chief, because when you are chief, when you are the person in charge, you become responsible for everyone else, and you have to act in sort of a a feminine kind of babysitting role, and Ralph does not like that. And I think that this is something that happens to a lot of men, in even in modern society, and you'll you'll have a lot of men that fall into this role of being a sort of manager of I don't know maybe it's in a company or I could see it happening to me as a as a teacher because I taught for five years. Teaching is a uh, I'm not saying that 
it's a completely feminine thing that only women should do because it's absolutely not. We There need to be male teachers, especially today when so many young men are lacking any sort of male figure in their in their personal lives. But it is a sort of feminine job. You are you are not doing a very masculine job. It's an academic job. It is a it is a thinking job and it leaves some people kind of feeling frustrated and a little bit uh a little bit emasculated. And this is what Ralph is running into. Because while while Jack's out there doing doing the hunting and he's not being very successful at it yet. So uh so Ralph is turned into kind of this uh you know badgering wife figure to Jack. And this is why the end of that portion I read said that they they looked at each other baffled in love and hate. Because Jack and Ralph, or at least Ralph, views Jack as his best friend and has since kind of the beginning, since they went exploring the island together. And they're in this sort of uh, father-mother relationship and it's it's not going very well and it's because there is this sort of resentment from Ralph that that Jack is literally not bringing home bacon to eat um and so there's there's this headbutting that's that's happening between those two that is obviously leading down the road to I don't know. If they're a, if they're a mother and a father, it's leading down this road to a divorce is coming. And we can already start to see that in the beginnings of chapter 3. Some of the other things we see is that the society of the children has sort of evolved and there's there's it's evolved into kind of classes. And there's two different classes that have emerged in the society and the classes are the the biggins and the littleins they have even invented words like all of the older boys are called biggins and all of the younger boys are called littleins and all of the decisions all of the politics all of the projects in the society are attended to by the big kids by the biggins and for the most part the biggins ignore the littleins and the little ones for their part are are constantly falling deeper and deeper into insanity, into PTSD. They're all having night terrors. They are they are suffering psychologically and it is it's very apparent to the reader if the reader's paying close attention, but of course it's not all that apparent to these these older boys because they're still young themselves. They're like 12, 13, 14, 15. They're not equipped to raise children. And so they they just kind of ignore them. And the mental state of these young children, which wasn't good to start with, is only getting worse. And they've started to model their behavior after what they see the big kids doing, which is natural. And this isn't leading anywhere good. Because the behavior of the biggins, with no parental guidance, with no kind of, with with very little uh, leadership and moral guidance, their uh, their behavior is not great. 
they they are starting to turn, turn kind of Darwinian. The bigger and stronger ones are picking on the little ones, and then the little ones that are, you know, that are bigger and stronger than other little ones are picking up on that behavior and emulating it. And that's leading nowhere good. Uh, and then more on Simon. I told you before, Simon is becoming this sort of Christ figure. And you see this by the way he interacts with the little ones. While everyone else ignores the little ones, Simon doesn't. Simon spends his time kind of helping the little ones. Uh, like as he's walking through the forest, he helps the little ones reach uh, the fruit that's at the top of the tree that they couldn't reach. Um, and he's very kind to the little ones. And then he goes off kind of by himself to his little uh, to his little shelter, his little church, his sanctuary. The next scene, and this happens in chapter four. The next scene, chapter four opens with some little ones on the beach, and you can see bad things are starting to happen with them like they are they're building sandcastles and some big ones come along and kick the sandcastles over and they kick sand into one of the little kid's eyes and he starts to cry and one of the other kids that's playing sees this and then starts to emulate that behavior and throw sand in the kid's eyes more and of course the kid just starts to cry more uh, and then he wanders off down the beach and you see somebody following him and Roger, we talked about Roger earlier. Roger is kind of like Simon in that he's a boy apart from the other boys, but his reasons are deeper and darker. Where Simon shows this kind of proclivity for charity and, and goodness, Roger is starting to show signs of sociopathy. He's throwing stones at one of the small children, and he's not aiming to really hit him. He's just thinking about it. Uh, and he doesn't he doesn't feel any sort of moral remorse for his kind of bad thoughts. He just there's this there's this imaginary line from civilization that he understands protects like the weak and innocent. Like in the old world, if he did something bad, he would be punished. And that line for him is starting to disappear, and he's starting to understand that uh, that there aren't really going to be any repercussions for his actions here. And then he runs into Jack, and Jack takes Roger and the others, and they go hunting again. And Jack is going to try something new this time. And Jack goes and he shows the boys how to make uh, face paint. He's made different colors of like clay and ash and charcoal and he paints his face in a way to kind of his his idea is camouflage but what it turns out being is this kind of uh, a war paint that he puts on and once he puts it on jack is liberated from from all the insecurity that he has felt before the mask is something the mask of the paint is something that changes jack from being just another one of the boys to being someone else that the boys are drawn to and as jack kind of shows them how to like he paints his face 
He convinces them all to go hunting, and they can't say no. There's something about this mask that compels the kids to go with Jack on this pig hunt. And so he takes everybody, and they go pig hunting. But there's a problem with that. It's part of Jack's responsibility to keep the fire going, the signal fire at the top of the mountain. Two of Jack's hunters are supposed to always stay by the signal fire and keep the signal fire going. So if you can imagine what happens, of course, he decides that they don't need to watch the signal fire because he needs them all to go hunting. He takes them, and as they go hunting, a ship shows up on the horizon, and Ralph sees the ship. And suddenly, for the first time, there is a spark of hope that that rescue is something that's attainable. But when Ralph turns around to the top of the mountain, he sees that there is no fire. And his, his resentment toward Jack for this thing is too much for Ralph to let go. And it causes this irreparable rift to form between, between him and Jack. But Jack actually kills a pig this time. And so Jack arrives from the successful hunt with this pig, this thing that he's been chasing maybe for, you know, for months or maybe even a year by this point. He returns with the thing he's been chasing. And instead of being received, like, graciously, he's received with Ralph's kind of fury. And Ralph is terribly angry at him. And they both just end up being really hurt and really betrayed by each other. And Simon is watching this. And Simon is the first kid to really understand that this thing that's just happened has done so much harm to Ralph and Jack's relationship that Simon's like this kid that's watching his parents argue and he knows that there's this divorce coming and he, like... There's going to be two Christmases pretty soon. And Simon understands this. The rest of the boys don't really pick up on it. Um, and then you have the end of chapter four. And this really kind of hammers home the one of the main themes of the novel, which is savagery versus civilization. So as the boys are dancing around the fire and they're super excited about this pig they killed and they're they're reenacting the hunt of the pig and they're doing this they're doing this pig dance that will become a kind of a sacred ceremony as we go forward in the book uh the civilized society that the boys kind of have tried to create is sliding backwards it's faltering and it's being replaced by something that is kind of more primitive and more savage there are you know they're they're painted faces they're doing hunting dances they are chanting songs there's all this kind of you know taboo about the beast and there's a rejection of kind of rationality in favor of just violence and this is starting to take place and ralph is starting to see it and of course, like Ralph is not 
like you and me, the reader. He doesn't understand the kind of big picture of what he's seeing, but he understands that there's something wrong with what he's seeing. So at the very end of the chapter, he does the only thing he can think of to kind of to try to bring back some order. And he calls a meeting. But it's not a it's not a normal meeting. This meeting and the boys have meetings all the time, but one thing they never do is they never have a meeting at night. They always have a meeting during the day so that when night falls they can all be at the shelters and they can be somewhere they can feel relatively safe. And Ralph says, we're having a meeting right now, not really thinking about, even though that we're going into evening and dusk. And that's uh, that's where chapter 4 ends, and then we go to chapter 5. And chapter 5 and 6. We'll kind of do chapter 5 and 6 together. So Ralph comes down from the mountain where the boys had cooked their pig, and he's going over all the ideas for his for his meeting that he's going to have in his mind. And his his goal is to set everything straight. And so they start this meeting, and the meeting is very organized at first. And Ralph is bringing up all the things that they're supposed to be doing, but they're not doing. They were supposed to build all the shelters together, but that didn't happen. They only built one shelter together, and then everybody just kind of did their own thing uh they were supposed to bring water every day from the stream and have it at camp to drink but all the boys have kind of given up on that and they just go to the stream to drink they were supposed to be going to the bathroom down by the sea so that the tide would carry out all of their uh refuse and they're not doing that they're just going wherever they feel like and this is Ralph tries to explain that this is not something that is good. He, he says it's dirty, but he's trying to explain that it's a it's a hazard. You can't just you can't literally shit where you eat because there are uh, health problems with that. And he doesn't you know he doesn't understand that completely, but he has an idea of it. And the little kids and even the older kids are kind of laughing at this because he's talking about pooping. And that's funny, and they're all laughing, and he has to shout them down and, and tell them that this is serious. And so he goes over all these things, and then he says, all of these things that I've said are, are non-negotiable. We're not going to have a debate about these things. I am chief, and we are going to do these things, and there's not going to be any argument about these things. And this kind of sets people on edge a little bit. And But... Ralph moves right on. He says, if there's one thing we can talk about and kind of decide on, if you guys want to have a discussion, if you want to have a debate, we will have a debate on the beast, on the idea of of the beast. And Ralph doesn't realize it, but this is a this is a bad idea because it's almost it's getting dark by this point, and any time the beast comes up, it makes people really uncomfortable. And this is kind of where you get the idea that the since we talked about the beast in chapter two, uh, since the big fire on the mountain and the boys, you know, and the kid with the mulberry birthmark, since he disappeared, none of the boys have spoken about the beast. The beast is a taboo that you're not supposed to talk about. None of them talk about it, but all of them are thinking about it all the time because it's a fear that they all have. And so... 
Ralph decides that we we need to talk about this thing and kind of set it straight. And this uh, this leads to four different points of view on the beast because four different boys are going to kind of present their arguments for lack of a better term and all four of these presentations uh represent kind of a larger in a larger sense like a worldview on the existence of kind of mystical or invisible things or the existence of god and the devil and the first person to to present their case is jack and Jack's point of view is the, the kind of agnostic point of view. His position is that like the only thing that is real is what I can see. And his view is going to shift as the story progresses. And most of the boys' views are going to kind of change slightly. But at this point in the novel, this is Jack's point of view. He only believes in what he can see. He's hunted almost everywhere on the island, and he's never seen the beast, or he's never seen a trace of the beast. So he believes that the the views, uh, the belief of the beast, or the belief in anything that is unknown, he views it as like childish and stupid, and he blames all of it on the little ones. And that's kind of important because you're going to see that that Jack has this disdain for all the little kids. And he's blaming them for the problem of the beast. Next is Piggy's point of view. Now, Piggy gives the kind of scientific atheist point of view. It's a little, it's similar to Jack's, but it is a little different in that Piggy, Piggy says that life is scientific. And he says, uh, it's what can be measured and understood by science. That is what is real, and there's nothing else that is real. Science can explain everything, and there's no kind of scientific evidence for the beast. Next is Simon. And Simon is somebody who doesn't like to speak in front of people. And Simon is the one at this point that, as far as like we're concerned, the readers... At this point in the novel, Simon is is the one who has it kind of figured out. That's the way the book presents it to you is like Simon knows what's going on, but he doesn't have the words to explain it, and he's very bad at talking in front of people. He gets really nervous. He he can't find the words, and he understands it, but he can't explain it. But he has to try because we've gotten to this very important part where Simon has to kind of try to explain what he thinks. And Simon's point of view is the the point of view of kind of a philosopher. And Simon says that there may be a beast, but the existence of the beast is caused by ourselves. He believes uh, in Simon believes in evil and fear, but he he believes it's this direct byproduct of human nature. the The beast is real, but the beast is us. And this is what Simon tries to explain. He tries to explain this is this is human nature. We are the beast. Evil is real, but evil comes from us. And of course, this idea is too deep and complex for the boys to understand. So the only thing Simon does 
is kind of breathes life into the beast and scares the rest of the children because they're too they're they're not smart enough to understand what he's saying and kind of uh as soon as he starts to make his case he gets shouted at by by jack and by piggy both kind of telling him that he's wrong and he should shut up and he and even ralph kind of feels a little betrayed because ralph's whole point here is is trying to to calm everybody down and he sees simon as kind of not helping the cause uh and then finally the fourth point of view and the fourth point of view is maurice and maurice is one of the more minor characters of the of the biggins and a minor character of the book but he becomes really important for this fourth point of view because maurice's point of view is that of a a believer in the in the mystic in the unknown maurice says that it's completely possible that the beast can exist because uh nothing like science human thought philosophy we can't explain everything as humans there are things that are unexplainable and in this broader view Maurice kind of makes this claim that we'll never be able to explain everything, so you can't discount it completely. That's what he says in kind of a in a broad sense. But what he says, like literally, Maurice makes this claim that like, well, the entire ocean hasn't been like discovered yet, and there's beasts in the ocean, there's monsters in the ocean that are unknown to us and it's possible that the beast is something that comes from the unknown ocean that surrounds us and this is an argument that plays really well with the boys because all of the boys were thinking about a beast that came from the island around them and even the big one or the big ones were able to kind of discount that because uh piggy and jack and ralph could make rational arguments saying like there's no way you have a there's no big snakes on tiny islands you only get giant snakes in places like the amazon or or in jungles you know but when maurice explains that it's possible it comes from the sea the kids don't have an argument for that and so everybody gets really uneasy and it's about this time that we realize that it's gotten completely dark and all of the boys are starting to feel really uncomfortable. And Maurice presents this this option of, or this idea that the beast might be real. And then, uh, and then there's one of the children, uh, one of the little ones, who has like earlier in the meeting he kind of fell asleep in the grass. One of the little ones has a night terror. And he starts wailing in his sleep. And this, the scream of him in his sleep is, is kind of unearthly. And it's, the mo- it's a very kind of horrifying end to this chapter because all of the boys are confused and they're scared. And Jack runs off with a whole bunch of kids 
and says, you know, let's do the, let's do a chant, let's do a pig dance to take our minds off of the beast. Meanwhile, Ralph and Piggy and Simon are kind of arguing. Ralph's getting on to Simon for riling everybody up. And uh, Piggy and Ralph are talking about how they wish there was a grown-up there, somebody who could who could help them out with all this. And then Ralph even says says this kind of prayer, this plea, and he, he asks for a sign. Uh, he wants a sign from the world of grown-ups on, on what he should do. And as soon as he makes this kind of prayer for a sign, that's when this young, uh, one of the little ones lets out this horrifying banshee scream of a night terror into the night, and that punctuates the end of that chapter. And so uh, Ralph's plan for bringing back order is completely lost by the end of that chapter and the boys all run back to the shelters and huddle together for for comfort and after a lot of crying and screaming and horrifying night terrors they finally manage to go to sleep and that is the end of that chapter and then we move on to chapters seven and eight and before i start in on what happens in chapter seven and eight I want to talk a little bit about philosophy because it it ties into this book really well. And it's somebody who I've probably mentioned before. And if I haven't, I, I need to talk about him more. But uh, there was a philosopher in the kind of late Enlightenment whose name was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau was... He had this idea, and the idea was, it goes something like this. His idea was that primitive man, before the, before the dawn of organized human society, primitive man was inherently good, and mankind is only corrupted by the evils of society. And Rousseau thought that children, children are born inherently good, and only society and their parents make them bad. Now, the reason I'm talking about this guy is because Golding's book, Lord of the Flies, is almost a direct argument against Rousseau. And why would you argue against Rousseau? Well, because Rousseau is an idiot, and this idea is terrible and and wrong and... <laughs> and historically laughable, but I guarantee you, you have come across this philosophy before. It's it's everywhere, it's hip, it's fashionable, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I saw this post the other day online. It was a picture of a Native American guy looking all sad, and it said this, and this is a quote from the, from the uh, I think it was a Facebook post, it said, before our white brothers came to civilize us, we had no jails. Therefore, we had no criminals. You can't have criminals without a jail. We had no locks or keys, and so we had no thieves. If a man was so poor that he had no horse, teepee, or blanket, someone gave him these things. We were too uncivilized to set much value on personal belongings. We wanted to have things only in order to give them away. We had no money, and therefore a man's worth couldn't be measured by it. 
We had no written law, no attorneys or politicians, therefore we couldn't cheat. This post I saw to my great horror was posted by a relative of mine. And she's a nice lady. She's super sweet. This was all good intentions. But this is a prime example of how this philosophy has kind of become mainstream philosophy in our society. People believe this. People think it's the truth. People like to think it because it's a romantic idea. But the problem is that it's completely, utterly, provably, laughably, hysterically wrong. Uh, the historical reality is that primitive man was, and still is in a lot of parts in the world, most certainly not romantic in the least. Uh, going back to that, that silly quote, um, most Native American tribes, especially the Plains Indians, had an entire culture built around counting coups. And coup was how you gain status in your tribe. And how do you count coup? Well, you steal your enemy's horses. That gets you coup. Uh, stealing, as in thievery. Uh, you want to know what else counts or gets you some coup? Taking the scalps of your enemies. Uh, I don't know about you, but sawing off the top of someone's head would probably be considered a crime by our society's standards. So would smashing the skulls of infant children because they come from an enemy tribe, which was another common practice of Native American tribes. Even cannibalism was practiced by tribes like the Tonkawa, the Karankawas, and a bunch of others in, in some degree or another. But we're, we're talking about all kinds of different primitive man. So, you know, my other ancestors... The, the Celts, the Celts, however you say that. Um, if you're Irish or Scottish, this is in you. The, these people would chop people's heads off and display them in their homes the way we put a deer head on the wall. The Anglo-Saxons and other Germanic tribes were just as savage as that. Uh, if you go back further to like uh, ancient humans, to the Neanderthals, they hunted and ate each other like animals. I wouldn't consider that inherently good. And cannibalism still goes on today in really primitive tribes in Papua New Guinea and a couple other places. So why am I harping on all this? Well, because William Golding in this book is making the claim and pointing out, and he, he wasn't the only one to do this, but he's pointing out that Rousseau's idea of the inherent goodness of primitive man or the inherent goodness of mankind is laughable and ridiculous. Through this fictional story, Lord of the Flies, Golding is writing about the truth of human nature. And Lord of the Flies is a classic for a reason, because Rousseau's idea is one of those ideas that has a real impactful kind of ramifications in society. Every lie that is sold to society incurs a debt uh, to, to what is true. And when society has to like belly up and pay the debts to truth, it's always absolutely horrifying. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition, the Salem witch trials, the Holocaust, the Soviet genocide, 
the Chinese genocide, the Cambodian genocide, you know, all the all the communist genocides. All of these happened because society, those societies, those cultures came to believe lies about how human nature works and who is to blame for society's problems. Because if society has the problem and we can blame someone for it or a group of people, then we feel justified in doing so. And we can go after that person or we can go after that group and we can feel righteous about it. But if we admit that we are the problem collectively, we can't blame everyone else. Uh, we don't light torches and sharpen pitchforks for ourselves. We only do that for other people. And this is why Golding's story isn't just a story about human nature and the devil. It's a warning to you not to fall for these comforting romantic lies that might lead you down like a bad path. And so I feel like right before chapter 7 is a great time to, to kind of shoe, uh, shoehorn this piece in there. Um, now, back to the, the happenings of the novel. Chapter 7. Um, in chapter 7, Ralph and Jack and Roger travel to the top of the mountain. And they do this because they've got to uh, they've got to go check on something because at the well I guess this isn't the exact beginning at the end of the last chapter you had the scream of the child and then the, all the boys go and they hide inside um, and finally they fall asleep. Well, after they fall asleep, there's this aerial battle that happens way above the island and again you get this hint that there's a there's a war going on outside and these two basically these two fighter jets are are engaged in a dogfight one of them gets shot down and the pilot ejects but the pilot ejects and he's dead and he he flies kind of in his parachute he flies around and kind of drags across the reef and up the side of the mountain, and the wind finally kind of like deposits him on the very top of the mountain. And up on top of the mountain is where the fire is supposed to be going. And you have Sam and Eric, the twins, are supposed to be taking turns watching the fire, but both of them have been asleep because the twins only ever do everything together. And so when they wake up to get the fire going again, it's almost went out, but it hasn't. So they start to blow on it and it starts to glow and they feed a couple pieces of wood on the fire. And as soon as there's some light, they see this thing. They see the dead pilot. But to them, of course, already primed for what they expect, they see the beast. And they run back to the tribe to tell the tribe that they have seen the beast. And so... Ralph and Jack and Roger are going up the mountain to confirm what Sam and Eric have told them. And I'm going to kind of zip through this part, but the long and short of it is they do go up to the top of the, the mountain and Ralph and Jack come 
face to face with this dead pilot, but they do so in the pitch darkness. And so, again, they believe that they've seen the beast. And whether or not the beast is real at this point doesn't matter, because in chapter 7, by the end of chapter 7, the beast is a reality for the boys, because most of the biggins have seen it, and to them it is a real, actual thing. Then we have chapter 8. Um, in chapter 8, the boys finally do the thing that we've kind of known is coming for a while. They split into two tribes. Jack and Ralph finally have their big falling out, and Jack tells everyone else that Ralph isn't a proper chief and that he should be chief instead, and he asks who wants to go with him. And initially, nobody raises their hand because he's put them all on the spot. And so at first, Jack's just really embarrassed, and he runs away kind of like, I don't know, it's like that South Park episode where where Cartman says, screw you guys, I'm going home. And Jack does the same thing. He says, I'm not going to play with you anymore. And he runs off to, to leave the tribe. And it's a very juvenile thing to say of, I'm not going to play with you anymore. But even though it's kind of silly like that, it's a very serious thing that happens. And very shortly after that, Ralph and Jack's friendship is completely lost. And suddenly, Ralph finds himself partnered up with Piggy. And because all of the other boys have no real respect for Piggy, it doesn't take very long for a lot of the boys to to see Ralph kind of, I don't know, letting Piggy kind of take the lead on things, and they leave. And suddenly most of the big ones go over to, to uh, Jack's new tribe. And Jack's new tribe is going to be a, a tribe that is centered around savagery. The only thing they're going to do is hunt. The culture is going to be centered around hunting and around a sort of a sort of worship of the beast. Because Jack makes this decision that anytime they they kill a pig, they're going to leave the head for the beast as an offering to the beast. And so Jack doesn't really realize what he's done, but he's made a pretty bad mistake, and we'll get to why it's such a bad mistake here in a second. Then Ralph's tribe, Ralph's dwindling tribe, represents kind of the old world that they've left, this this trying to hold on to what's left of Western civilization and English culture. They're trying to hang on to civilization, and meanwhile Jack is going to embrace savagery and there's a lot of talking back and forth in the in the early parts of chapter eight and simon again tries to explain to ralph what's going on and the problem with human nature and he's trying to explain the concept of sin but he doesn't have the words to do so And so he ends up asking, he asks Ralph, what is the dirtiest thing there is? This is a, this is a quote from Simon. And he's trying to explain like, uh, 
what sin is, what the, the darkness of man's heart is, the dirtiest thing you can imagine. And Ralph is just kind of confused and doesn't quite understand. And Simon feels like he's kind of a failure. And so you have Jack, uh, Jack's tribe, you have Ralph's tribe, and then you have Simon who goes off on his own. Simon leaves because he feels like he's, he's not doing any good. And he goes to the only place where he can kind of think. He goes to his sanctuary, his, his church. And he goes and he crawls in the middle of his little church sanctuary. And he kind of just sits there and meditates. And it's a very, uh, again, super big biblical imagery. It's like, uh, it's like Jesus in the Bible going up to the top of the mountain to kind of be alone and pray. That's what Simon is doing. Meanwhile, Jack and his new uh, tribe go on a hunt. And this hunt is very different from any of the other hunts they've done so far. They start tracking the pigs. And they find them. And the very early, you see that they're they're making some some mistakes, some kind of moral mistakes and also rational mistakes, because first off, the pig that they go after is a sow that is sucking a whole bunch of piglets. So it is a female pig with a whole bunch of babies, which means it's a pig you probably shouldn't hunt because that pig is raising your future food source. But that's the one they go after. And not only do they go after that, Roger actually throws his spear at one of the piglets instead of the, the mother. But they hit the sow with a whole bunch of spears, and there's this, this very kind of dark chase that goes on. And they chase down this sow, and Golding uses very specific, very uh, suggestive sexual language. It's, it's not overtly sexual, but he uses kind of sexual words to describe the, the hunt that Jack and the boys uh, are on. And it's because you have all these boys that are, that are suddenly... You know, when we left them off on the island, they were, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and it's been a while now, and you have all these boys that are all hitting puberty, and they come from a very proper English culture where they're not going to know anything about, you know, what these hormonal urges are that they're feeling. So they have, you know, this, this kind of testosterone driven pu puberty driven uh kind of sexual thing that's starting to happen to all of them but they don't have an outlet for it and it turns into something very twisted and grotesque with this pig hunt and it's a it's a terrible kind of vile spectacle. They, they chase the pig down. They stab her full of holes. Uh, Roger lodges his spear in the pig's butt. And just uh, the boys find it like very kind of funny 
and and Jack slits the pig's throat and he's kind of throwing the blood on everybody and they're all laughing and kind of cackling and it's it's very disturbing. It's it's probably I don't know, it's not the most disturbing scene in the book, but it's it's the most uncomfortable scene in the book because it's the language used and the the way the boys are acting is as soon as they kind of decide they're going to start giving offerings to the beast and become a, a savage tribe, they go full bore on into the dark side. Um, so this whole thing takes place. They chop off the pig's head. They sharpen a stick at both ends, and they impale the pig's head on the stick. And Jack makes this kind of offering out loud. He speaks... He uses words, and that's important. He speaks to the to the forest. He speaks to the silence, and he says something along the lines of, uh, "This this offering is for the beast." And then they leave. Um, and this whole time it's kind of taking place. There's a couple hints, but usually the first time you read it, you won't pick up on it until you get to the end of that chapter, and maybe not even then. But this whole time the spectacle's been going on, it's been going on in Simon's little sacred clearing. And Simon is sitting in his little uh, sanctuary looking through the, the mat of vines, and he watches the whole thing happen. And it defiles his sacred clearing you know when we first saw this clearing it was like there was blue butterflies fluttering around and it was there was flowers and it was beautiful and suddenly it's as if someone has come into simon's church and sacrificed a squealing pig to the devil which is exactly what jack and the boys have unknowingly just done because the next thing that happens in the chapter is the turning point of the novel. Because we have Simon facing the beast. Uh, Simon stands face to face with the, the pig head on a stick. And in his head, at first it's in his head, but then it's out loud. Simon hears the voice of the beast. And he talk, or he doesn't actively talk to the beast, but the beast talks to him. And we learn some things about the beast. The beast is the Lord of the Flies. The name of the novel, The Lord of the Flies. And the Lord of the Flies translates to Beelzebub, which is translated as either Satan himself or at least like Satan's lieutenant. Beelzebub is a demon. And uh, Beelzebub, the word, literally translates to Lord of the Flies. And that's where the name of the novel comes from. And that's who the beast is. The beast that these boys have been talking about since chapter one is a demon. Uh, and we learn that the beast does not want to be revealed. The beast tells Simon to keep his mouth shut. And it warns Simon that he, he better not reveal who the beast is. He better not go running back to the rest of the boys and 
tell. And if he does, the beast threatens him. The, the beast says, if you do, uh, they will kill you. He, he explains that he will use the rest of the boys to kill Simon. Because it's, it's understood that the beast works through the actions of the other boys. And it, he all but says this to Simon. And Simon is left to make a decision. And Simon's decision is to keep his mouth shut or challenge the beast. And we already know what Simon's going to do. Simon has to challenge the beast because that's who Simon is. That's Simon's character. And that is the end of chapter 8. And that puts us at an hour. And I really, really thought that I could do this in two episodes. But I... I really want to keep my episodes to to about an hour. So, turns out, Lord of the Flies is going to be three episodes long and uh, not two. But, I'm going to leave you guys there. I'm going to go ahead and post this this evening. And I, I will, uh, I'll make you a, not a promise, but uh, I'll give you, I, I'll try really hard to have uh, part three uploaded by uh next week i'll try to get it done by mid-month because i want to do i'm not going to be doing as many podcasts going forward it's probably going to end up being a once every couple weeks kind of thing and so for june i'm not going to give you another book to read but at the end of june i'll do another book summary and uh I'm going to do another book summary, and it'll be a book that I won't have you read. It'll be the reverse. I'm going to give you the summary first, and then I I would encourage you to go read the book after I give you the summary. And there's not very many books that I would say you should do that way, but the one I want to do next is. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is, because I don't want you to, uh, to... defy me and go try to read it first because that would be going against what i want you to do so anyways i'm going to sign off here that's the end of part two i will bring you part three of lord of the flies the the awful terrifying horrifying conclusion of lord of the flies i'll bring that to you guys next week sometime until then thanks for your time have a good evening